all of you stay behind me. I'm gonna take them out to the sand. What about you? You ready? Let's do it. Welcome to Stuff We've Seen. This is Jim. And now, here he is, the man you've been waiting for, and waiting for, Rupert Pupkin. Oh, I mean, uh, Teal. Hey, buddy. How's it going? What? Is there a reason you're pulling out a Rupert Pupkin joke? Did something, don't, don't is there the something in the, the news I missed? Don't you remember that? Where they're like, they're like uh, ladies and gentlemen, Rupert Pupkin. I oh, I remember. No, I was just wondering if there was a reason, if there was something in the timing of it today. No, was some no, no. Reason for the Rupert Pumpkin? Okay, no. but no, I'll, I'll, I'll take it. It's good. To... But maybe, maybe there's a reason for this because I have one question for you. Yes. Does the cider house rule? Does it? No. Okay. <laughs> Glad we cleared that up. <laughs> most definitively does not. Okay. All right. Uh, hey, um, uh, people out there, uh, we aren't going to spend 20 minutes talking about stuff that has nothing to do with what we're going to talk about <laughs> because in the house with us today is our new special guest friend, Carrie you may remember from a few episodes ago, she came on and we talked about women film directors, and she's back for some more fun. Carrie, are you there? Hey, guys. Yay. Glad to hey. be back. Hi. We're glad to have you back. And you sound like you sound great. Great, great. Uh, I think you have a mic upgrade or something. I do have a mic up- upgrade. That's That's correct. Super. Um, okay, so I, I'm going to give everybody like kind of the rundown of what, <laughs> yeah, what give we're us an overview planned. here. All right. Well, we decided that it was a lot of fun, kind of focusing on women directors. So we would go for a round two, but we kind of decided we'd have a specific mission where each of us, uh, Teal, uh, Carrie, and myself, would either pick a specific director and focus on their films or maybe a hodgepodge. So uh, Teal has teed up Catherine Bigelow. I have teed up um, Martha Coolidge. Nice. And Carrie has got a couple of different films from different directors, correct? That's right. And then just because we didn't feel like we had enough content there, uh, (laughs) we knew that on Criterion, they were featuring a French filmmaker that I really enjoy, uh, Diane Curries. 
and she made a lot of influential French films in the 80s. And we decided that we would try to see a couple of those movies as well. So I don't know how much we're going to get to, uh, but I'm going to kick off the action. We're going to send it to Carrie. She's going to tell us about a film that she discovered on Criterion. I'm not sure how she discovered it. Uh, She can tell us that. And then we all watched it. So uh, take it away, Carrie. So I just discovered it because it was, you know, one of the big banner images on Criterion. And it looked, I'm drawn to things by witches. Uh, because they have kind of like, you know, a feminist bent to them of usually being loudmouth women that were persecuted on trumped up charges. So what's the name of this film? It's, oh, I I am not a witch. <laughs> Sorry. Did I, I say, not a, I did You I were didn't intriguing me, but I figured I'd better tell the audience. <laughs> I am not a witch okay. from, t- from 2017. That's right. Yeah. Um, and I might be saying the director's name wrong. But I'm not even going to try. Rangano Niani. That's how I was going to say it. Perfect. That's how I was. Yeah. <laughs> no, okay, I'm serious. Good. I was. Probably, I was like, how are we going to say this name? Except I was going to yeah. go Niani. I think not Niani. Well, it, it, yeah. I mean, either one. Could, either one. We know who we're talking we're, about, anyway. We do. So I guess uh, the director was uh, born in Zambia, but raised in Wales. Yeah. So there's kind of this European and African upbringing or whatever for her. And the movie's set in present-day Zambia. and Which I think is important to mention because when you watch this film and knowing it's present-day, but the way that the subject matter is, <laughs> it's, it, it is hard for, I guess, a Westerner to be, this is, uh, this is what it's like in other parts of the world. I mean, I, I don't know a lot about it, but it is a real present-day thing in some countries in Africa that women are still accused of witchcraft and then there are consequences. Yeah. And there actually are groups of witches, uh, kind of like in the movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. and yeah, she went and spent time with some of them. Right. Researching this. I think I had to do some reading because one of the central things in this movie is that the witches are tied down and, uh, well, they're not like strapped down. They have ribbons attached to them that are, I don't know, a couple hundred feet long. And it's such a, an incredible, it, it, it was so amazing and so bizarre that I had to look it up and see whether it was real or not. And it turns out that the ribbons are invented for the movie, which actually made me like it even more because it's then it's it's clearly they're just working on the level of metaphor. Right. Yeah. And just, you know, the way the ribbons, which they call ribbons, and they're attached to these huge spools. Yes. And it's very like sort of thread like, which I think it seems like a reference to women's work to me, too, to have these like Mm -hmm. threads of ribbon that are spooled up but yeah so we sort of follow this little girl who's eight and is accused of witchcraft we see her like kind of go on trial and um, <laughs> okay you say go on trial but what happens is <laughs> yeah they do, i mean i they, was doing like <laughs> mental air quotes around that they <clears throat> they do a rich they, they bring in a witch doctor who does a ritual with a chicken Right. To, de- to determine whether or not she's a witch. That's nice. And, and, and it's all because she won't deny that she's a witch, too. Uh, right. But, yeah, th- th- that was a big shock for me is that, like, when they call the author- the local authorities uh, to deal with her, they're like, oh, she's a witch? Okay. 
Let's yeah. <laughs> and I mean that the that character, the sort of local governmental guy, yeah, is super excited. He's like, "We've got a new witch in town." New witch in town. And he's yeah. taking this bath that his his wife, and you learn some more about their story and history uh, later. She's giving him a bath and he's super, he's like, whoa, I got to get out of this bath and get down there. <laughs> get, get, right. get that new witch. Yeah. Because he runs, right. the, he, he sort of runs the witches. Tonally, didn't you feel, uh, at least at the beginning or portions of the movie, I thought, and again, I had to reevaluate as I was going along, but it almost felt a little satirical. Yes. And again, when the witch, because when the officer woman, she's at the desk when she's calling him, when the accusations are being made, she had a look on her face like, not this again. This is so ridiculous. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I, I did get the sense that a lot of, there's a mixture because you get to see the old world and the new world uh, kind of intertwined. Yeah. And you get the sense that nobody really even believes in this witchcraft, but they look at customs, traditions, and I guess the opportunity to keep women as slaves in a sense. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, because that's essentially what they become. Once, you know, there's this there's this group of witches and this little quote unquote witches. Just whenever I say witches, it's in it's in quotes. It's in quotes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. None of them are witches. No. So then they just labor for free. They're just taken places and they do basically hard labor, like either with farming or just like breaking rocks up, or they're just used and then also as a tourist attraction. As yeah, they kind of have all these different jobs they do and yeah that tourist attraction thing i wanted to go back to that for a second because that's the opening shot of the film is yes. seen is seeing them essentially through western eyes right and, and we're put in the position of as the tourist because that opening shot it's the point of view of a passenger on the bus that makes exactly one of those passengers so I and I felt that really strongly in this movie, especially in that very uncomfortable opening sequence where I understood that I was with this group of tourists and that I was one of them. And then I was looking at these witches on display and it was extremely uncomfortable. Plus, if you're a tourist and you see this, all you may know about this, you know, supposed witches and witchcraft is that this is some custom that this uh, this third world area somehow believes in. And you might walk away thinking, well, this is what these people want. They may not even understand what goes on behind it. And so they are gawking and finding this is all very interesting that we're learning this, uh, you know, this culture. But there's so much more that gets revealed within seconds after the tourists disappear. And that it has all these layers of corruption and the weird way in which things are accepted by a culture. You know, she gets brought into this this witch group and then... uh, is sort of used by this local official as he says, you're my little witch, we'll work together. Uh, And so he sort of rents her out to do different things. And one of the things she does is decide who's guilty in a trial. And and so then we get to see how that whole process works uh, and sort of how this this little town <laughs> works together with this with these witches and as part of their government in a strange way it's definitely a patriarchal world that we're talking mm-hmm. about yeah 
Well, just, you know, that she had a choice. You can be a witch or you can be a goat. Yes, if you cut off the thread, you get to be a goat. Right. Go into this shed for the night and you can decide. You want to be a witch or you want to be a goat. And then they're totally powerless yet punished in a way for having power that they've been ascribed by men, even though they're powerless. Right, but this so power like, to like the power to fly across the continents and right kill so people this, and yeah right yeah this imagine so they're told like oh you have this overwhelming power you can see the truth in things and you can fly and you can kill people and so we're gonna have to tether you and make you into slaves and it's <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like the whole. It feels like the con- the whole construction of sort of like femaleness and womanhood and the trap yes. of it that's not, that's nearly inescapable. Plus, you know, they rely on her to change the weather. Yeah. Well, and it is inescapable unless you turn into a goat in a way, right? It, 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 this is the structure of things. This is not a movie where she takes on the system and changes things by the end of it. No. Um, it, it, yeah, it doesn't, it, it's, it's a very, well, I think in one thing I was reading, the director said that this is, this is a fairy tale mm-hmm. and it does, I think, work on the level of fairy tale. There's a lot of narrative ellipses, which are interesting, mm-hmm. uh, where it sort of doesn't show us something and sort of guts to the next thing. And as a director, writer, director, she's counting on the audience to be able to put things together. You know, like we have no dialogue from this or hardly any dialogue from the main character. Uh, And so we're putting a lot together in terms of what's going on with her internally, which the performance certainly gives us a lot to work with. And Jim, I wanted to get back to something you said about it being satirical. And I think that connects to what Carrie was just saying about it is this sort of patriarchal view uh, yes it takes the the women's work and the ribbons and it, but it's doing all this with some broad brush strokes and it is supposed to be sa- sort of satirical and funny or dark comedy in a way maybe but it's an examination of this kind of <laughs> screwed up system but in a way that yeah i think they're supposed to, you're supposed to find some humor in it yeah and i definitely did around mr banda yeah, <laughs> of the Ministry of Tourism and Traditional Beliefs. <laughs> just, just that, <laughs> just that title alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's it sounds like a little bit of like Harry Potter. Yes, but, yes, it does. <laughs> um, but yeah, I did. You know, there were definitely times I found it funny, and I didn't. I also, I think maybe part of me thought things might go well for her. In some way, right? Uh, because she had this individuality, and she seemed to have this agency, even in this horrible situation. And yes. I was, I was hopeful, and I was corrected <laughs> by the end of the movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think the ending is purposely ambiguous um, on some of the details and is really leaving it up to the audience to kind of decipher. And that's one of those narrative ellipses I was talking about. Yeah. I mean, there is a little bit of a magic realism thrown into the entire film. Yes. But there's some interesting things where, you know, I don't want to spoil everything for someone who hasn't seen this movie. And I really do hope people take a look at it on Criterion Channel. Shula, the young girl, she basically encounters a woman 
who seems to be caught in the modern world, however, was once a witch as well. Uh, yes. And she has untethered herself, even though she has to, in certain circumstances, keep up the pretense. Right. And she uh, basically tells a little girl that it's kind of, it's it's not real and that I didn't turn into a goat. However, even though she feels that she's part of respectable society, there are times when we are reminded that she is still captive, yes. this woman. And there's a couple of scenes, but there's this one where she goes to the store and people recognize the person and, and you know, almost that, um, it was almost like a witch hunt where they're tracking yes. her down. I mean, there's a lot of animosity to the witches. I had real hope for her throughout the movie. Yeah. And she was sort of trying to work her way around the system and see some way out. And and there were things that it's I found it really visually beautiful to look at and weird. And it was funny at times. There were a lot of amazing images. Shots were amazing. Yeah. Well, there was another thing where uh, you know, it's a, it's the second encounter with tourists, which there's actually a cameo in amongst the tourists of the director herself. She's in. Oh, in okay. oh I didn't know that. Oh, I only knew that because I was yeah, I was so fascinated, and I couldn't watch this all in one sitting. I had to kind of go back and forth, and I was so fascinated that I was checking out who this director was and saw a picture or a couple of pictures of her, and then I see her in the crowd uh, <laughs> okay. of, of the tourists, but. In the second, they these tourists notice this young girl, and they're like, "Well, why isn't she in school?" And next thing you know, the minister is getting <laughs> her into school. However, she's not attending a regular school; no. she's in this outcast society school. Yeah, uh, that she can't. That way, she's not going to be seen by um, normal society and and be taken away from basically yeah. his meal ticket. And there's this sequence again the beauty and the things that we're talking about with the ellipses of you have to kind of figure out what the action is before yeah. it becomes clear is when i think it's the medicine man uh, comes and they they start spinning the thread yes and you're like oh what's going on and you realize they're they're using gravity and they're pulling her away from the school back to them right uh, and that was another sequence where you you get a lot of these very original uh, approaches to the visual style mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i i don't know if if carrie hadn't picked this film would i have i saw the i saw the ad on criterion too it's one of their highlights but i don't know if i would have watched it uh, maybe at some point you know but i think i would have needed some word of mouth to get me interested and this is again why i'm i'm so thankful that carrie decided hey let's watch this movie because again i got something yeah, I got to say, I I would really recommend this movie. Yeah, I think it has the potential for a much wider audience than it might seem uh, on, on first glance. I would watch this with my daughter. I think my parents would love this movie. Uh, I so I think it it has a the demographic is a lot broader than it might otherwise be. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. It, it 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 is totally original. It doesn't really fit in a genre. And so it's hard. You, you, it doesn't have the built-in expectations that you get with the genre, 
which, you know, segues us into Catherine Bigelow, kind of. No, but. we're not going to go there. We're going to go with, with Carrie's next film. Because oh, I know. I speaking know. of genre, speaking of genre, here's a genre. You already, because uh, you like to find a way to fit these films into a subgenre or something. Yes. And our next film, you already found a genre <laughs> to put this one into. And it's a film that's streaming now. And I think we all had to rent it. Yeah. Uh, but I think mm-hmm. uh, it just shows you that this is where this movie probably would have been in art houses this winter. Yeah. Uh, it wouldn't have been in major markets, uh, but it would have gotten a lot more press about its release, um, basically because of the the subject matter. But this is a film that is called The Assistant. It's written and directed by a director named Kitty Green. Mm -hmm. And Carrie, why did you choose this film? Literally just from looking at the trailer for it. Did you know anything about it beforehand? No. So you didn't know that this movie was even coming out? No, I didn't know. I think I had heard it mentioned in, I, I don't know. I knew that it, 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 there was, there's also that Fox News, the bombshell movie. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, right, right. Right. And so I had heard these two movies mentioned together as sort of being some of the first movies of the Me Too era. Right. And so, yeah, that's, I think, all I knew about it. I hadn't seen the trailer or anything. I, I knew very little about it other than that. And I'd heard about it a little bit, and I was intrigued. I, I don't know. The, the lead actress is Julia Garner, yeah. and she is in this show that I've not seen, but it gets great reviews, is Ozark. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've, watched, I've watched Ozark, and I like her on Ozark. And uh, so I, so I didn't, so that wasn't what was attracting me to the story. Uh, I think that there was a lot of parallels and comparisons being made about this film in that that she is an assistant for some very powerful film producer in the vein of a Harvey Weinstein. Uh, so that was sort of the hook that yeah. was gaining some interest because people, I think, wanted to go and see, oh, is this a film that's going to basically be a wink, wink, nudge, nudge to this is the way Harvey was? I, I, you right. know, I didn't know. And I figured I'd probably wait till it was for free, but I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll bite the $6 bullet and I will rent it for the for the show because <laughs> Carrie is going to watch it and I don't want to, you know, not have seen it. And then I think you said you saw that, the film, right? Or did I see it? And then, no, I think I saw it until you said you, you had seen it too. So, yes. Um, so I, I guess we should start with Carrie because you watched it first and I want to get your thoughts. I I didn't love it. I mean, I'm, I, I don't know if I've fully formed an overarching opinion about it, but it was definitely an experience. Like, we're so in her experience. We're just, like, deeply in this one person's experience. And it feels very, uh, it doesn't feel completely real, mm. sort of, the way it got to me. Yeah, yeah. It was just, you know, the lighting is so grim. And it's just like relentlessly negative in the sense that like almost almost every interaction she has is a negative reaction that yes. reminds her that she's not worth anything. It was really hard. And I think at times I wondered, is this too much? Like, would it benefit from having and, and there were one or two moments that alleviated that but they were very brief and very infrequent at at the same time i recognized those situations 
not the like find me a woman and send her to my right. hotel situations, but <laughs> the you know being ignored and being asked to do things that aren't your job and being asked to make people coffee and do dishes. Like I've worked in offices almost like my whole career, and those things I related to and understood, and they're yeah. very hard and very depressing and wear you down and do tell you that you're not worth as much mm -hmm. you know maybe it was the intentional creation of this kind of world that is centered around her and is about the kind of um suffocating oppression of working that way and mm -hmm. that that was the the point but yeah, yeah it, it was it was hard <laughs> it was it, hard it really <laughs> does uh, go into it. It spends a lot of time on sort of the mundane details of her job where she's, you know, cleaning crumbs off a desk or something or putting away old coffee cups. And she kind of gets snatches of other people's conversations. And we do too. So we sort of get a sense of what's going on, but just through some lines here and there, things she overhears. And I got the sense from this that everyone else was just as miserable as her pretty much. And yes, there's a lot of negative interactions going on. You know, there's like there's this, the other guy who works at a desk near her. There's a scene where he comes out of the boss's office and he looks like he's just on the verge of tears. Mm -hmm. And so we see other people having negative stuff going on, too. And I, it, for me, that seemed it was too overbearing to a point where it, it seemed like it wasn't realistic to me. Oh, uh, yeah. No, that's exactly how I yeah. feel, too. Yeah, and so and it, that's it, why I questioned if that was the point that the director was trying to create this unreal level. Yeah, to hammer home the point, but I I think I wouldn't agree that was a good I, idea. I, I, I think it I think it just went too far, and it needed. I mean, I've been an assistant. I've worked in situations where the people I'm working for are not the most, I don't know, <laughs> moral or uh, functional or sober. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so I've definitely, you know, I've worked in these situations and there, I have found that there is an uncomfortable kind of humor that goes on with it too. And that mm -hmm. there's, almost not not this is extreme but like there's almost a party atmosphere going on where like everyone is at the party and if you're not at the party and that's essentially what they say to her like you're either coming to the party or you're not except it's a really it's not much of a party it's just really dour you just teal said something that was interesting because this has been my this is my major problem with the movie i think tonally yeah. it was off and it starts with the things that carry had said it feels too cold to mm -hmm. be real life because what you just said about this party atmosphere that's what i have found i felt that in a real situation it could be the worst and the scenes where the guy comes out of the boss's office and he's all shaken up and the way that he's be, she's obviously been treated on the phone though you don't really get to yeah. hear fully what that conversation is and how she's being instructed on how she needs to respond to him that stuff is is real but it's the party atmosphere i find that sometimes in the most toxic environments yes. to almost make up for the fact that the person who's in charge is so awful it's a it's kind of like there's a levity Yes. To the interactions between everybody else because they're trying to uh, form a camaraderie. 
Exactly. Even if there's backstabbing and other things. So I think I would have found that a little bit more interesting if the film was tricking you in that, hey, this feels light and fun and like a good job, but slowly you see what a terrible job it is and what an yeah. awful person she's working for. So I kind of uh, fault the writing a bit, which is also written by the same director. I just I just felt totally I was removed and, and, and couldn't warm up to the movie, even if the subject matter is dire. Like, I mean, we talked yeah. about I Am a Witch, right? It, it, it dealt with some heavy subjects, uh, but it was... Uh, it was satirical. There was times to laugh. It felt a little absurd and you were kind of, uh, you know, it, it helped you as the audience uh, go through that journey a little bit easier. Right. So I was still stuck with what was the point of the movie? And I struggled with that as well. Well, I think I can, I definitely understand and agree about that whole party atmosphere at the bottom. I can also see that like if, the person at the head is truly terrifyingly sort of abusive yeah. and you really, really want something from them as an employer, just like your job or his connections to get you somewhere that another dynamic that can emerge is that the, everybody turns on, on each other. Right. On, Absolutely. On, and, and you don't, you just sort of take on the abusers. <laughs> attitude right. and don't want right. to be the one on the bottom and it felt like that's what she was going for was that the assistant was the absolute bottom and everybody just turned on her and it was still a lot i'm not saying it wasn't a lot to watch but i don't think that that dynamic necessarily doesn't i there's a way that makes sense to me as a dynamic right. that that could emerge it's just like every Every choice was so overbearing and so so oppressive <laughs> well, and so depressing, and there there was like one little moment where she was having to um, babysit the yeah. kids, and she's in some little meeting room with the and the girls being a horse, and here's this little girl and she's just doing whatever the hell she wants. Nobody can tell her she's not a horse, and and she gets the assistant character to smile and act like a horse for one second yeah. and that's like one of the only times we see her smile and there to me there was this thing about freedom in there and right uh, but she couldn't experience it for more than one second okay i <laughs> maybe maybe i'm going the wrong direction with this but it seems to me or i had the impression maybe midway through this movie that she was choosing to be miserable mm, right yes Yes, it's an oppressive workplace, but like she is dour and unhappy from the moment she gets there before she's even run into anybody. And she just seems to be taking she's put everything in a negative light. OK, and then the big thing, right? The big plot point of the movie is that she thinks her boss is up to something untoward and goes to HR to report him. And we have to sort of make a choice whether we're with her on that or not in that when she goes to hr there's we find out that she's only been at the job five weeks mm -hmm. and if i would known that from the very beginning of the movie i would have read her performance totally differently hmm. but i didn't know how long she'd been in the job so it was hard to sort of get an angle on the character but then once i find out she's only been there five weeks it starts to make more sense that she sort of has She's not being moralistic, but she's being a little naive, I think. 
I, yeah, no, I viewed that completely differently. And in the subgenre of bad boss movies, I was prepared to go into this. Uh, I was prepared for this movie to have a big scenery chewing boss role. Mm-hmm. And uh, the fact that we don't see the boss at all, I thought was great and is an interesting comment on the genre. So, yeah, 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 I agree with that. Um, but you were saying but, you see, see it differently. Yeah, go ahead. So I saw she can, I think she could be naive about how things are going to work the in a company that's run by an abusive yes. boss. Like, yes, definitely. that's what I mean. Uh, yeah. Oh, Okay. But I mean, she's young and I guess I saw, you know, I think those scenes with HR were really interesting and she was learning like, oh, this is how this works. Yes. But that, you know, she was trying to help those young women that were getting... Absolutely, she okay. wasn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I, no, no. I, 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 I thought I you think were she, sort of like she's an idiot for trying or something. No, 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 no. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> no, but it, I think I think ultimately what the point of the movie is is that she has an epiphany about what the system is like, and she has a choice: is she going to continue to be part of that system, or is right. she going to fight against it? And she tries to fight, and it, it and it doesn't really get any get her anywhere. Of course, the HR guy is going to tell everyone, right? Mm-hmm. She's a little bit naive about the reality of how screwed up the system is. Well, once once she finds out that he's basically gone right to the boss and said all yeah. of that, that's when she knows, oh, there's a system where the only way I I succeed in here is by falling in line. Yeah, and the system is always defined by the person at the top of it. Yes. So they can say whatever on paper that how things are hypothetically running but yeah my favorite part of the movie because i didn't really like this movie at all um but mostly because i didn't really know what it was trying to say that's that's where i felt it was very mixed bag like was it trying to was it trying to show and prove that this boss was a harvey weinstein or was it trying to say well we don't really know what harvey weinstein did because see if you really break it down the people it's a lot of innuendo and you don't really know and how can you really fault those people for never saying anything because they never saw it with their own eyes and that was what i thought was interesting about the scene in hr where where the hr rep is played by michael mcfadden and he's a great uh kiss ass sleaze in the tv show succession um and and he's really really good in succession so I, i enjoy him and i like this performance because until the part where you find out that he went straight to his boss the second she left um which really makes me heal the yeah. things he's saying for and i know these hr people because i've dealt with them many times in my career having to like just just from the standpoint of being a boss and had to hire people right. and stuff that they're really good at getting into the what did you prove where's the evidence and right. what by the time he's finished with her he really does i feel like i went through the movie up until that point kind of looking at the evidence the way she did saying, oh yeah, look at all these things. They're all adding up. And then as soon as she steps into his office, you really are walking away with going, yeah, well, we can probably surmise what must have taken place, but we really don't know. Um, so I, I, so, but that's where I also felt that the movie was kind of a mix where it's kind of muddling the waters. And so I'm right. like, well, what is it? What is the message this movie's trying to send if I'm spending an hour and a half with it? And at the end, I really wasn't sure. 
I don't think it's about whether the boss did anything or not. I don't think. I think it's like that's just a given that the boss is abusive. Is this horrible, toxic? Yeah. Yeah. That's just, that's not on trial. But I agree. Like, I didn't like the movie either. And <laughs> I don't, I, I am also unsure about what the point is. But to me, it seemed more to be about like this kind of toxic, misogynistic system is going to crush anybody that tries, yes. especially a woman. Yeah. Especially a young woman who tries to have any impact on it. And, and that's not a very big message and that's not a surprising message. And then the whole movie was just like hammering that on that us same message. over yes. and over and over again. <laughs> and it was like horrible and relentless. And it's only it's 80 like, minutes long. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's But it's like recreating for us the experience of trying to be the assistant in that company. Yes. And it's not pleasant. It's horrible. <laughs> this this whole idea of the, the desire that lured to get into the industry. Yes. And I think from the assistant's yeah. point of view, she, she seemed to be very upset that here she had this great education. Um, and as the HR manager makes a point that there's like, he's got a stack of resumes to try to take that job. And yet, if you're a beautiful waitress uh, in a film festival area, the boss can suddenly fly you in and say, you're going to be a new assistant and put yeah. you up in a nice fancy hotel. And so she instantly learns, oh, there's a disparity there where my education, I mean, you got to figure she just got out of college. Right. And when you get out of college, you really do think that all that you've achieved and that you've worked for is going to add up into that first job and that people are going to care. And then you quickly realize that people go, oh, you went to that college. That's nice. And they don't really care about anything that you might have achieved. <laughs> I know it's sad, but it's true. <laughs> no, but that's it. so anyhow, I think that's the point the movie was making. I think it was supposed to be sort of an examination of these things. I guess I liked the movie better than you guys, but I still didn't like it. Mm-hmm. I didn't like it. <laughs> I didn't. I think there's a continuum with James dislikes it the most. I'm in the middle and yeah, yeah. Middle somewhere else. I do not highly recommend this. I don't really recommend this movie at all, but. I've always spent a good half hour talking about it. (laughs) It is a discussion worthy movie. Mm -hmm. I think it's an important movie in a, in a way that it is a voice that's kind of unique. Like I said, in the subgenre, there's, you, you want like Kevin Spacey, uh, yelling at Frank Wally, right? Well, Um, you don't want Kevin Spacey anymore, but no, no, you don't, but (laughs) he really turned into a horrible boss. Exactly. Right. You want Meryl Streep and doing a big, uh, scenery eating, boss performance and this film doesn't do that it takes a completely different tack and it's trying to do something interesting and it's trying to put its voice into this me too conversation and i think it's it does uh, you guys both said you didn't know what the film was trying to say but i i I feel like i got something out of it just as an examination of this corrupt system and Mm -hmm. the choices people make to further their own careers despite what they may feel is morally right and yeah just in in terms of the overall conversation so i think it's it's an important film it's going to be in this me too subgenre but does the cider house rule no, no. okay most definitively <laughs> no 
you know, I know that Comcast got my $6 is what I know out of it. But uh, okay, so we're going to move on to the next thing. And, uh, you know, just knowing how long we've already spent on these films, <laughs> and we're not going to have that much time. I don't know how many of these things we're going to get to. So I then want to make sure. I think we might do a two-part episode. They, well, Carrie, would you think you could come back? <laughs> Yeah, sure. Okay, great. So we've already got her booked in for her third show, because, uh, and then we'll have more movies to pile on top of this. But I want to go and talk about, for me, this is this is kind of personal, mm-hmm. uh, just because I feel like for years, I felt like I was the only person in America who knew about this movie. And it just go, it goes back to like a, being a child of eight years old. Yeah. And I, we're going to talk about Diane Curry's next. And uh, again, I mentioned at the beginning of the program that they are featuring three of her films on Criterion. I kind of wish they would feature a few more because uh, I would like to catch up on a few additional ones. But when I was a kid and I used to thumb through the pages of the newspaper on Sundays and see what movies were coming out, there was a film that caught my eye. It was called Peppermint Soda. And this came out at the beginning of 1978 in America. It came out in 77 in France. Maybe it was because it showed like a teenage girl on the cover drinking like some kind of, you know, like peppermint soda. That sounded tasty to me, right? <laughs> and Sounds like mouthwash to me, but go ahead. It probably was. It's probably <laughs> if you go to France, you know, they have very interesting tastes. It probably tastes like scope. But it was a film that said PG. I, I was like, I really kind of want to watch this. But I think my mom thought, well, a film with subtitles, you're a little too young for it. But I never forgot because the movie lasted in Boston or Cambridge for many, many months. And I'd always see this poster. So I was obsessed with this film, Peppermint Soda. And I didn't know it was directed by a woman. I knew nothing about it other than, well, it must be about teenagers. Over the years, another you know, these other foreign titles would pop up in the paper. And there was a film called Cocktail Molotov. And that was in 1980. Oh, yeah. And I didn't even know that that turned out that that's a sequel to peppermint soda. Uh, But I didn't know that at the time. Go to the mid-80s, I think about 85, uh, the Somerville Theater, which I always go to, used to show nothing but uh, art house, like kind of a retro movies. And in the summer, they'd show like four or five films. And that summer, my friend uh, Robert and I would go. And a lot of times, we didn't even know what movies they'd be playing. It was just like, all right, I don't know if we want to see all five, but we're going to just go to the theater and see all of them. And one time, it happened to have peppermint soda. So I finally got to see this movie. And at the time, it made an impression on me because I was pretty much the same age as the two girls in the story. And it was just wonderful to finally see what this movie was about. And I like coming-of-age stories, so that fit into that. And then it never, it's just not something that as I went to college or later in life, anybody ever talked about. It never showed up in any other channel. Uh, It seemed to be just a forgotten movie. And then I kind of said, boy, if any station would ever show Peppermint Soda, it's got to be the Criterion Channel. And lo and behold, they decide to do a little brief Diane Curry's retrospective. Peppermint Soda is one of the films, so I was excited to rewatch it. And most of the film felt like watching it for the first time because I remembered very little of it. Uh, But I really enjoyed watching it a second time and... Since I've seen some of her other movies, I could see similar themes that she revisits about her childhood and her parents' divorce that she brings in other movies. So I made the two of you watch it. I know, Carrie, you watched it. I don't know, Teal, if you watched it. 
I did watch it, and here's what's funny is I got about halfway through it and realized I had seen it before. <laughs> but I think, you know, sometime in the early 80s, I had seen it at a college theater. That would make sense. Yeah. So I didn't have that same kind of, I don't know, view of it that you did. It was just something like, I've told you about this, how my friend's parents would just drop us off at the college theater. Right. And there would mm. be like, it would be like three French films. And <laughs> that was one of them. And that was one of them. So it was really cool. It, it, yeah, it took me a while to realize that I'd seen it because that was, you know, I, I wasn't that aware of what movies we were watching. We, it wasn't like we tried to go see something. Right. Uh, it was just whatever happened to be playing at the college. And so, so it was really cool to see it again after, you know, I think at the time uh, when I saw it, I had been mostly bored by it. Well, that makes uh, sense. Yeah. Well, you were probably too, a little too young, right? I was, a little, I was a little too young. I mean, yeah, I, I think I was just a little too young. So what, what, did your, what were your thoughts, Carrie? Because I remember, you know, you on Instagram, you do this great thing where you take pictures and snapshots from the film and you say where I paused the movie. Uh-huh. But you, with your photographer eye, you always capture very intriguing images from the film. And when I look at it, I always say... Boy, that's a great moment that she just captured. Yeah, I did that. <laughs> not, not, that's the, awesome. not the filmmaker. But um, yeah, there were a lot of beautiful shots. And I, I mean, I enjoyed it. I don't think I like super loved it, but it was a very enjoyable movie. I liked the sort of like intimacy of it. There was just like a physical intimacy between the girls themselves and between us, uh, you know, the camera and the girls, that it felt like very close and very kind of in their world. And, you know, it could be kind of goofy sometimes, like with the the gym teacher was super silly. But it did, I don't think it made like a huge impression on me besides being, you know, enjoyable and feeling very much like of that age. Well, there's not much of, a, I mean, there's not much of a plot. There's really no plot. I there's mean, it's really basically no plot. one yeah. school year and the events that unfolded. Right. And, and they were, you know, taken from her memory. Right. I haven't seen the follow-up film, uh, Molotov uh, Cocktail, but she's revisited this story in from different angles before. She made a film in 1990 that I did see in the theater when I was at NYU, and it was called C'est La Vie. And when I watched it, I also didn't know that it was the same director. Oh, interesting. But I found out afterwards because I was like, you know, it's weird. This feels like a deja vu movie because <laughs> there's two daughters and there's a mom and parents breaking up and and it's in the past, like in the the late fifties. And I, I feel like I've this is related <laughs> to Peppermint Soda, and it turned out it was. And I didn't even see the second film that I had everyone watch, which was Entre New. And this it helped really link what Diane Curry's does. Because it's the first time that she goes into her parents' relationship and breakup, which she's examined in several of her films, but Hmm. from different angles and with slightly different characters, though she uses similar names. Uh, So, Teal, did you get to see Entre or did you not? I did not. (sighs) But you did, Carrie. (laughs) What did did, you think of it? My guess is that you like this one. Yes, I like this one a lot more than I mean not that I dis dis you know dislike peppermint soda. There's strong there's stronger themes at play at this one. I'm always fascinated in sort of side stories about World War II. Yeah. Like 
what was the effect on people as World War II was happening? Right. And, you know, these little stories. And it takes place at the beginning. You get both of these women's stories as to how did the events of World War II shape and impact them, but okay. also the men that they end up being with. Right. And their happiness or not happiness with those men. And I think that there's a very Boiler, fascinating it's journey. not happiness. What? I said, spoiler, it's not happiness. Well, yeah. I mean, well, it's obvious. <laughs> yes. But uh, I just thought it was, like, you know, it, it's also, you know, 1983 subject matter. I, I, it's not a lesbian story. It's a, like, friendship romance. And uh, to me, it's about, like, especially from that time period, you know, probably still true today, that women's friendships like have this richness and this essential thing that's necessary in the face of living in a world that's sort of like dominated by men. And that can be a very like powerful, passionate thing that feels essential and is deeper and more important to women's lives than maybe friendships that they have with men, maybe friendships that men have with each other, that it has a different, you know, tone and reason to it. And these were two women that sort of, in a way, like wound up with men and they weren't that concerned with why they got <laughs> married or who they got married to. It was something that just kind of flowed along that was inevitable and they were disinterested in, but they were passionate about each other and they supported each other and they had a deep bond that, you know, did sometimes look like uh, physically romantic, but was never, we never saw anything physically romantic. But I think the point is that those kinds of relationships are essential, especially in the time when, such a misogynistic patriarchy is ruling everything. And that was threaded through in how she needed permission to drive. She needed, she didn't have her own money. You know, all of these things where they had no freedom in their relationship with men. Yeah. And in that way, I mean, I thought that this was a good pairing in a lot of ways with I am not a witch. It would be a little bit different, but like, you know, thematically, there's a lot of interesting yeah. tie-ins. You're right, Carrie. It's a passionate love affair that two women have, but it's not sexual necessarily. Right. Um, right. And the original French title, which was changed for the U.S., so they used a French phrase, entre nous, between us in, in, mm -hmm. in the U.S., but the actual French title originally was uh, Coup de Faude, which is Love at First Sight. Oh, mm -hmm. interesting. And I think that yeah, makes much that. more sense uh, for the title. This movie, it has a lot going on in it. And Teal, I think you really should. Yeah, I'm going. I'm definitely going to check it out. And then she had a third movie that is uh, called Children of the Century. And it is about another passionate love affair of what writer Georges Sand. Oh, interesting. Okay. And it's funny because I saw an American version around the same time uh, called Impromptu. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, it's a very light, fun movie. So I, I've watched the first 20 minutes of it, and it seems pretty interesting so far. Uh, Juliette Binoche plays Joy Sand, and it does look great, uh, but I won't be catching it for this program, obviously. <laughs> I didn't get through it either, just time-wise. But yeah. yeah, I agree. It looked interesting. 
I don't know if we're going to get to Martha Coolidge necessarily, but we could talk about Catherine Bigelow, uh, which Teal, you you have some films to, that you focused on. Yeah. And what I find very interesting about Catherine Bigelow is she personifies and really dispels that notion of the idea that, uh, well, only men directors can do certain genres because she... She's a genre filmmaker, largely. Yeah, but she's also like, if you watched, you know, I don't I don't think you can necessarily watch any movie and say, oh, a man directed this or a woman. But right. you could probably guess man because almost always men directed these movies. But when you watch a movie that Catherine Bigelow directs, you would never just immediately go, oh, well, this was a woman that made this movie. She flies in the face of these men who think only can do an action movie. She has a reputation for being kind of a masculine filmmaker. And let me just, she was my first female director crush. You know how you Mm -hmm. get director crushes where you like become obsessed. Well, so I saw Near Dark when I was a kid. So you're, you're younger than me. So I saw that in the theater. We came out to my local theater and saw it. So, I, yeah, I saw that probably right after it came out on video uh, and I was working at the video store and I loved that movie. I became totally obsessed with it. I watched it over and over again. I would quote lines from it. And so, like, I went and saw Blue Steel on opening day. You were like me. Like, when I saw Near Dark, if I like a movie a lot, I instantly say, well, who directed this? Exactly. And so, suddenly, I didn't know anything about Catherine Bigelow's history. I just said oh, well, the next time Catherine Bigelow makes a movie, I want to be there for it. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's basically how I felt. And so I've sort of, I feel like I've kind of just, you know, been with her since 1987, kind of following her career along. Um, even when she was directing TV, I was kind of aware of it. That said, I'm not necessarily the bi- the biggest fan of her movies. I still love Near Dark. I think Zero Dark Thirty is pretty great. The Hurt Locker, K-19, The Widowmaker, not great. Strange Days, I haven't seen since the theater. I remember kind of enjoying it, but being a little lukewarm on it. Yeah, that one was weird. That's one of those you feel like, well, now, 20 years later, would I like it? And I did try to watch a chunk, uh, like, I don't know, six months ago, and I was like, yeah. no, this isn't very good. <laughs> it's not, yeah. And I, I haven't seen Point Break in years. Oh, that's a classic. Mm. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> A lot of people love that. They, a lot of people love Point Break the way they love Roadhouse. Yes. Yeah. yeah no, I wasn't making a negative point. Oh, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying I like it the way. Like, I just, I mean, there I, are people that are obsessed with that movie. Yes. Well, and you it, know, oh, God. Now I just forgot his name. What's his face? He'll do that to you. Oh, uh, Swayze. Swayze. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Swayze and- All I could see was the mullet, and I couldn't think of his name. <laughs> Johnny Utah. But again, yeah, it's a genre film. And, you know, I think she she works in genre largely, I think. Even even Zero Dark Thirty, I consider a genre film. Now, Carrie, you swear you haven't seen Near Dark, but I can't believe that you could have escaped the 80s and not seen it. It's a vampire movie, but it's much different than any vampire movie that had come along at the time. I wish I had been able, you know, as I said, I'd try it. It was on Criterion and then it suddenly disappeared and I thought it was good. I haven't seen it. I really haven't seen it. it. It's worth, I, I haven't seen it in a really long time and I don't know if it holds up at all, but it's a really fun little vampire movie that is, yeah, about sort of these redneck vampires in their Winnebago kind of touring, <laughs> <laughs> driving around Texas and drinking people's blood. Um, but it's, it's, so it's a modern vampire story, but one that feels really uh, like, yeah, this is what vampires might actually be like. Interesting. 
is it a little Lost Boysy at all? No, 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 not at all. No, no. it's it's not that silly. It's right. really a good movie. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna. I'll 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 get on it. It has this '80s actress Jenny Wright in it that uh, she kind of stopped making films after the late '80s, but uh, you know, and then Adrian Pazdar and yep. Bill Paxton and oh, I mean, I was obsessed with everybody in that film. Lance Henriksen. Yep. Jeanette Goldstein. And these are all people that kind of uh, circulated in the Catherine Bigelow, James Cameron years because yes. they were married for. They a time, were married. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carrie, what's what's your thoughts on Catherine Bigelow? Because I. I I think she's complicated. Yeah, you know, she's not. I didn't really think about her or really be aware of her until like The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. Okay. Like I just didn't really have an awareness of her. Th- those are the two I watched. Yeah, uh, rewatched for for today's recording, and I had seen them before. You know, running through the so you know I'm watching them the way I'd watch anything yeah. else. But of course, running through my mind is like. Is there something different about a woman? Am I seeing something that's different than the usual kind of war movie? And I feel like I do. And of course, no woman is like some monolithic representation of all women. Yeah. But there were definitely things that felt different to me. And some things with pacing, especially. Oh, interesting. In the action-y parts where I think I would probably be more used to like super fast and furious like lots of cuts and right dramatic music and things and for instance in the hurt locker that kind of sniper in the desert scene like took Mm -hmm. a really long time and there were lots of little close-ups of people's eyes and it was really slow and in zero dark 30 the same thing with with when they're finally raiding the compound it's not that it was completely slow but there were like little bursts of action and then like a real slowness and there was no music yeah and it it felt very different to me than what i think of as like a hyper masculine like we're kicking ass and we're busting right. down doors and we're going to punch you in the face with music right it's it's more bombastic <laughs> it's more bombastic yeah. and, and sort of and and kind of like muscular cinematography like look at this yeah. shot and now we're gonna hit yeah. you with some music and yeah <laughs> we're americans um <laughs> so you know again i don't want to oversimplify that like she represents everyone but i think you know if we're just gonna speak very generally yeah It did seem different. And to me, like watching The Hurt Locker this time and thinking about specifically that this is a woman director and thinking about a woman looking at men. And this could be completely me projecting my own opinions onto the movie. But I saw the movie really differently this time. And I saw it so much about men and emotions and where they put emotions and what they what's acceptable. Yeah to do with emotion, anger, and sadness, and fear. Which is kind of what the title is, right? Yeah. I mean, I think so. Although when I read about like what the, I mean, of course, it's like exactly what the title is, but that's not what it means. Right. No, it's not what it means in this situation, but it, it has the, that. Well, but she's creating a dual meaning. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it's not what it means to the, you know, soldiers that say it. It's not right. even what the, apparently the press release for the movie said that it means. But yeah, to me, it's like yeah. what's available to men to deal with their strong emotions and then putting it in this hyper-masculine situation of war and bombs and, right. and stuff to give a real extreme where you're gonna have... 
these big overwhelming emotions but they're not appropriate in the setting so how do you yeah how do you manage those and it's interesting because i feel like hurt locker and zero dark 30 really deal with the emotional consequences of violence yeah that's kind of what you're talking about i think and i think zero dark 30 does that too where it's it's sort of yeah what are what are the emotional and moral consequences of violence and war and i think that that is something that she's doing differently in her later career than she did in her early career, where the violence was mm-hmm. a little bit more entertainmenty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit more. You know, po- Point Break is not like they don't wallow in their guilt about killing somebody during a bank robbery. So I think that's something that's over over the course of her career, she's gotten more and more serious in a way. Yeah. It seems so. And I found especially Hurt Locker really sort of thoughtful. So you just recently rewatched The Hurt Locker. Yeah, I I saw it when it came out. And yeah, I just watched it in the past two weeks for this. You did better than me. I, I haven't seen it since uh, it, first hit, it first hit DVD because it didn't. It was not a hit in the box office, and no. I wasn't able to see it when it first came out. I think it lasted in theaters where I was in Arizona at the time for like two weeks. I don't think I saw it in the theater, but I saw it, you know, whenever it was released. Well, it, it got a terrible release, and, and then it started getting lots of press and lots of media and awards and stuff, but. Nobody could find the movie. It wasn't out on DVD yet when it was Mm. uh, like up for awards. And so people started pirating it. Really? Mm -hmm. Oh, and this movie's famous for this. Really? Um, Oh, I didn't know. Yeah, people pirated this movie. It's one of the few production companies that decided to go after the pirates. And they they sued thousands and thousands and thousands of people. They put the hurt on them. Yeah, so no, Hurt Locker is actually known for sort of this, uh, yeah, this moment in piracy history, I guess. <laughs> well, um, I don't remember exactly. Somehow I saw it. I don't know how, yeah. but I did. <laughs> I would have to see it a second time, but I did not like this movie very much when I first saw that. Oh, you didn't like Kurt Walker? Why not? I think it's because it's just, you know, I felt a little bit removed. And maybe it was because of the different, the expectations I brought going into the film and knowing that it looked, I think when I saw the film, it was right before the Oscars, actually, you know, the ceremony. So I did see it before it won this picture, I think. Or maybe it was right afterwards. And I remember thinking, this is the movie? That one because I'm because I, I always know how you know we have these Oscar shows and I right. and I know how the Academy thinks so I get it I know why it was chosen for best picture I know why it was chosen for best director it was historic it was time it felt like a movie that the Academy could get behind mm-hmm. to give their first Oscar to a woman director but I feel like there were many opportunities before that 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 should have happened and I just didn't like the movie very much I didn't think it was even a top 10 for me so I just in the standpoint of like honoring how I would pick a best picture I just didn't think it was that not to say that I didn't like certain moments and Carrie just mentioned one that I hadn't thought about in a while yeah. was that sniper scene and I also love the scene where um, Jeremy Jeremy Renner Renner, Jeremy Renner yeah Remmer. I like when he re- turns home and he's in the supermarket yes and so what's so normal to us is foreign to him yeah and of course you know he 
gets goes back because he just can't exist in the normal world. He has to be with that intensity, and it's the only place that's keeping him sane, which is this insane world. And so I liked yeah. I like selected moments, but it just wasn't my favorite film. I mean, I agree about the whole Oscar. But I mean, I have, I could have a whole rant about the yeah. Oscars. Do you, are you saying you need to be in on our on some of our Oscar I shows? I will. I sometimes <laughs> I'm talking to my I listen to your Oscar shows, and I'll be talking to myself not about what you're saying, but I just have a full rant about the Oscars. It's like the country's prom, and the cool kids aren't invited, and nothing means anything. It's just like meaningless. Anyway, <laughs> I agree. Like I wasn't taken with it the first time I saw it either, and I still don't think it's a best picture or whatever. But I did get a lot more out of it watching this time. And, you know, once I, I think I just somehow didn't lock into this, you know, male emotion thing when I saw it before. But, you know, I was really taken, like, after the whole sniper situation, they go back to the base and they have punchy drinky time where they, like, get (laughs) on. And I said to, I was watching it with my boyfriend Morgan, and I said, is this the male version of cutting? So, you know, <laughs> like, except, except it needs to be performative and it's right. got to be taken too far. Um, and, and they just have to like work it out by getting all messed up and punching each other as hard as they can. Yeah. And, you know, I, there was, and I noticed this time how, okay, there was some kind of psychologist or counselor or whatever who would try to talk to them. But, and in my mind, like, that's the way to go. You need to talk about your feelings because that's, I mean, I guess as a woman, perhaps that's how I think about it. They had a therapist, but they blew him up. (laughs) And then I was like, okay. And then I thought about it. I was like, well, all right, that's one way to go. And, And they sort of tried to tell him. You don't understand. You don't understand what it's like. You're asking me these questions about how I feel or what is this and what is that. You don't get it. You're never in combat. And I realized like he wasn't effective. And he didn't seem to get how things worked. And when he did go out there, he was a complete idiot and didn't handle, he didn't recognize danger when it was happening. And maybe you can't really deal with the emotions in a war situation because it's really too dangerous. Yeah. And then you shove them down and you can't just recall them at will. So I think of him going home. Right. And there was a part of him that wanted to return back to that. You know, we saw him earlier trying to call home and hanging up. Yeah. And I think there was this feeling inside of him of like, I want to be able to reconnect to that world. But I don't know how because everything I do is shoving everything down yeah. That makes me a complete whole person and be able to relate to other people in a healthy way because I have to protect myself. Well, and there's no, I think that's the thing about taking the therapist out of the picture is like, there's no structures in place. There's no ways in which people deal with this that's that are productive, right? When you're in this life, you're kind of stuck there and there's not, you don't have a lot of tools for reconnecting, like you were saying. 
Yeah, I, I, that part at the supermarket, I think is fantastic. And I would say that that is done so much better than it's done in American Sniper, which is a movie I hate. Um, I didn't watch it because it sounded horrible. And yeah, everything about it sounded it, not good. It's actually kind of, I think, maybe a, a good counterpoint to The Hurt Locker or Zero Dark Thirty because it's so male. Like yeah. the, the end of American Sniper might as well literally be a pissing contest. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, who can shoot farthest with their big gun? <laughs> that's literally yeah. the climax of the movie. And, and it's yeah. like, you know, that's not what Catherine Bigelow is doing. It's She's not looking at the macho side of war in The Hurt Locker. You know, th there is that. That's that like drink and punch scene you were talking about. But Right. I mean, I will say that Catherine Bigelow doesn't have a large filmography and- there may be in her filmography more misses than hits, but, yep. uh, you know, she's still she's still out there. Uh, I mean, I think that everyone was hoping that Detroit was going to be this part three of this great yeah. sort of trilogy that she had been going with, with uh, The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty. But I haven't seen Detroit and I heard it wasn't very good. You Did you see it, T.O.? I saw it. Is it good? Is it bad? I'm not a fan. Okay. I mean, so she's hit or miss, but anytime that she is going to make something, I am intrigued. Yes, I am too. I'm, I'm interested in what she's doing because I think, yeah, I think Carrie's right. She does, she's telling these maybe what would be considered more masculine stories, but she is bringing a different view to them. And she is doing something a little bit different than your typical Hollywood action filmmaker. Yeah. And thank, you know, thank you for assigning her or whatever, yeah. <laughs> because I, I, I hadn't thought about her that much. And I, I got a lot out of watching these again. Good. Um, and we're not going to have time for Martha Coolidge, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but, uh, but that's, there's going to be another case where I, what I wanted to bring into that discussion is just what, especially in the eighties, which were filled with like ridiculous, stupid sex comedies. Yes. Mm -hmm. What happens when you take a woman director who doesn't necessarily play by the rules and her films are one thing, but some of the behind the scenes stories and struggles she had making them are a completely different story. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So we'll, you know, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll get a chance to talk to Mar about Martha Coolidge on, on the next installment. <laughs> That's something we haven't really talked about much. Women's experience in a male dominated industry. Catherine Bigelow, after Near Dark, Oliver Stone called her up and, <laughs> and said, whatever movie you do next, I want to produce. Mm. Did, did he? And he did. He produced uh, Blue Steel. Oh, that's interesting. And that, you know, by the way, that's not a very good movie. <laughs> Blue Steel. <laughs> yeah. Oh no! I was so excited to see it. I was so I saw it opening day, and it's just it just no, it's not good. It, 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 I saw an advanced screening, and I think it was complete. Uh, it was one of those where they invite you know studio audience to give their comments, and we were really excited because I was like, oh my god, I'm getting to see this Catherine Bigelow movie before anybody. And at the end, I was like. <laughs> oh. Oh. But you know what? She took Point Break and she took a movie that should have been just total garbage and she elevated that genre. Yes, and she did. Because I was expecting to hate it and I went and saw it on a lark. And then at the end, I was like, hey, you know, that was actually a pretty good movie. <laughs> it's a pre it's a really mm -hmm. fun movie. Yeah. I haven't seen the remake and neither has she. <laughs> oh, that looks terrible. That, no, 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 no. <laughs> 
And I actually got to see it was on. I feel like it was on the MGM channel before when my when when I my provider still had that. I got to see her very first film uh, that was done in the early '80s. It doesn't feel like anything else that she's ever done, uh-huh. and it was really a strange. Uh, mixed bag it's definitely like a, a very low budget uh first film attempt but i just thought it was kind of cool to be able to see it but uh you know whatever that went nowhere, <laughs> <laughs> that went nowhere. i cool. thought you were i thought you were going somewhere with that no it's the loveless but we i think we mentioned it before but it, it had like the first movie that willem dafoe was ever in yes it, it, mm. it like it takes place like in the 50s or whatever it, you know it was cool so anyway it is pretty cool yeah I have an aside about uh, Strange Days, which you can totally edit oh, yeah. out if necessary. But I worked at Magnum Photos when that movie was being produced. Yeah. And I sold image rights from Magnum Pictures to that movie. And I remember it was something they paid like something like $27,000 for wow. use of, I don't know, maybe 20 images or something okay. like that. And so I when it came out. I went to see it anticipating like, all right, I'm going to, because they said it was going to be for use on like billboards and bus Mm -hmm. ads and stuff on set uh, in pretend ads for things. Yeah. There was one photo that was on screen. (laughs) It was on screen for maybe two seconds. Hollywood does spend a lot of money. (laughs) (laughs) Well, what they should have done was found out how much the rights would cost and then waited to see what they ended up using and then went and got the rights for it. Well, back then though, you had to be sent actual slides and prints. They wouldn't have had the image. This was, you know, like early nineties where we didn't have digitized images or they couldn't have. Yeah. Well, look, you know, see, I knew there was going to, we were going to go through a lot of stuff and, uh, and and it's always better to end when we wish we could just talk more, but we're going to have to end uh, because I have to edit this thing and it's going to take me years to edit. Uh, (laughs) Longer the episode, the longer it takes me. But anyways, Carrie, it sounds like you're going to be back sooner than later. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to. It's, yeah, yeah. it's very fun. Thanks for having me again. So uh, we, we're going to have Carrie back on soon. And of course, th- th- these theme episodes, they take a while. Like we have to now like scramble to watch some of these movies. Right. So th- that might have to take place in a further date. But uh, certainly if you want to come back for part two of our uh, first decade of the 2000s Oscars, that that's going to happen very oh, soon. Yeah. And you can certainly come in on that if you'd like. I would love to. Oh, yeah, good. come well, join us anytime. <laughs> then now we are sending you an invite very soon. <laughs> okay, sounds good. All right, uh, gang, uh, stuffwevesseen.com is the place to get all the episodes. Feedback at stuffwevesseen.com is the place to voice your complaints, and we yes. will look at them and laugh. But we usually get just junk mail from it oh yeah we no we should read some of our junk mail on 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 the show okay well then you know this is this is my favorite that we just got (laughs) monetizing by connecting your listeners one-on-one hey love the podcast you already know this person has never heard our podcast i'm steven avid follower of your show and huge support of cannabis (laughs) i admire your hustle and respect your commitment to grow your podcast community coronavirus has led me to pivot my startup and spend more time listening to podcasts as i spoke to more (laughs) podcast listeners i learned that they're looking for more ways to connect and engage realizing this i've built a video events platform that enables (laughs) listeners of podcast communities to have one-on-one live conversations speed networking style 
It's called Hi Right Now. <laughs> the vibe of your podcast is amazing. And I'd How love are they to... spelling hi? Oh, just H-I. I know. It okay, be... I didn't know because he's a cannabis <laughs> I'm sure enthusiast. there's a connection tie-in. <laughs> and I'd love to empower you to deepen the bonds within your community and powerfully grow it. This week, we're selecting a few beta podcast communities to launch our podcast into. If you're interested, <laughs> let's have a chat. Please book a time using the link below. Looking forward. Best regards, Stephen. Hey, the Stephen, thanks. Thanks for being such an avid follower <laughs> well, of my at show. Least, at least that's like actually somewhat relevant. It's not just like a Nigerian prince scale. <laughs> well, until we click the link. Well, <laughs> don't click the link. I'm not. I didn't. I actually <laughs> saved it so I could read it to you. And then it just dawned on me that uh, there. But, uh, you know, I, I always love those sort of form letter things yeah. where, oh, your podcast is me. Oh, yeah. Tell me something about it. <laughs> what do you like the most? Uh, okay. Anyways, uh, this has been fun. And we will see you again. Well, we won't. I always say that we won't see anybody. We'll listen. We'll hear you soon. I don't know. No, now. you'll hear us. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 it's been a long week. Uh, all right. Stay safe. And well, I was going to say go see some stuff, but I can't even say that anymore. Yeah. Watch some stuff at home. Yeah. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Bye, Carrie. Bye.